0: Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast. Headlines and stories from the land of enchantment, brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhardt.
1: We don't need any more resource limitations conversations. Uh, We need to use the power of a public health and a state of emergency to access different levers different resources and different opportunities to keep New Mexicans safe.
2: That is Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham on Friday, September 8th, announcing a public health order in response to what she says is now a public health crisis. We've talked a lot about crime on this podcast, whether it's about approaches, perspectives, possible solutions, or even big trials. But I think it's fair to say we haven't talked about crime quite like this. The latest response to crime in Albuquerque has garnered local and national attention since the governor made her announcement.
3: A day after declaring gun violence a public health emergency in New Mexico, the governor called that news conference in Santa Fe, announcing a first, a temporary ban on open and concealed carrying of firearms in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County.
1: The purpose is to try to create a cooling off period while we figure
3: out how we can better address public safety and gun violence. The gun ban is supposed to last through at least October 8th. That's 30 days from the announcement. The public health order makes it a civil violation to go against the order and open or conceal carry a firearm in a public setting. As the governor outlined in the executive order, it does not apply to licensed security officers or law enforcement.
2: It also doesn't apply on private property. Since then, as you can imagine, at least a few groups have sued the governor, challenging whether this executive order is unconstitutional. That's in part what we want to talk about today. What is behind this move? What led up to it? how will this pan out? And what is next for what is obviously a move that people have some strong opinions about?
3: Joining us today on the podcast is Gabe Sanchez. He's KRQE's go-to political analyst and a professor of political science for UNM and a professional pollster. Gabe, thanks again for being here.
0: Always a pleasure to talk with you both. And obviously, this is a a big topic with a lot of consequences. So it's great that we have a chance to unpack it for our
2: viewers. Absolutely. And I think before jumping into more info about what this ban is about, I do want to give listeners some context about what we've seen here in Albuquerque as it relates to violent crime and what's led up to it here this point where we're at with the governor making this public health order. We've seen at least three different deadly shootings involving teenage suspects this summer. One of those shootings involved a woman who was trying to get her stolen car back. Another case involved a long-standing feud between teens. And a five-year-old girl was shot and killed while sleeping in her home, caught in the crossfire again of this feud.
1: No one right now in New Mexico, and particularly in Albuquerque, is safe in a movie theater, at a park, at a school, at a grocery store. You just aren't safe, I can't guarantee it, and neither can the men and the women who put on a uniform every day.
2: The shooting that preceded the governor's ban, it's thought to be a road rage shooting that killed a 11-year-old boy in front of Isotopes Park after a baseball Saturday. game.
0: Police are asking for help finding the shooter's car. They say whoever was involved unloaded 17 shots on the passenger side
2: of the victim's truck, killing the 11-year-old. Now APD says the boy and his aunt were shot after their truck may have cut off the suspect's car. Suspects then followed the victims, opening fire and shooting at least 17 rounds. This is a nightmare experience for that family, and I think in many ways for our city. This is the kind of thing that should never, ever, ever happen.
3: So Gabe, let's just ask you first to set the scene a little bit before we get into this public health order. You know, I think crime is something we've all acknowledged is a problem. You've lived in Albuquerque for a long time. We know you're a father, too. The governor mentioned in her press conference that she's gotten so many calls and texts from people feeling unsafe in their community. What are your thoughts about, you know, the violent crime that we've seen this summer?
0: Yeah, obviously that context is why our governor felt as though she needed to take some action. Now, let's be honest. She knew it was not going to be universally popular and and probably was going to lead to some long-term questions about her legacy, et cetera. And for somebody like myself, you know, who graduated from high school in the mid to late 1990s in Albuquerque, anybody that's my age or older remembers that period of time where crime was at all-time highs. And we led the nation, I believe, in a lot of particularly youth-oriented crime, uh, particularly in terms of violent crime, of death by casualty by guns, et cetera. I never thought we would revisit a time like the 1990s in, in Albuquerque, and we're there and exceeding that on most indicators. And I think that's the context. In fact, I've heard from more people in my network than ever before uh, that have talked seriously about having to potentially look to move out of Albuquerque uh, because, you know, I have a, a 13-year-old. Anybody that has kids understands, you know, you're worried about going to the isotopes game in the context of this last incident just going to the grocery store, right, and worrying about any possible road rage instant escalating to the fact of gun violence. And I think it's that perception of fear, that perception that crime is out of hand, et cetera, that's leading elected officials like our governor to feel as though they've got to do something about it. Um, And we're going to unpack, you know, what are the political consequences of all of this, but you always got to remember, there's always for elected officials the potential cost of inaction. If I don't take an aggressive stance, um, particularly somebody like the governor in our second term, will I be worried about my legacy? And what that means is when folks look back on your time in office, will they connect the dots and say, hey, that's when crime was out of hand. That's when we had all those road rage incidents and you didn't do anything about it. So I think it's always important to remember there's a significant cost to inaction. and the governor, like anybody else, may feel as though things are at a tipping point and if I don't make some aggressive moves now, will it only get worse? And that's a serious question, given, given all the, the data that you unpacked in terms of the context of this.
2: Let's talk about the governor's announcement, the ban on open and concealed carrying of firearms by anyone in public spaces. And again, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, it doesn't apply on private property. And violators are basically allowed to be given a civil violation under the state's law that governs the public health order. So the governor gave a few explanations behind her rationale. I think one of the key points was that she basically was sort of saying, I've got to do something. So what is your take, Gabe? The move feels pretty bold, reactionary. Perhaps why does the governor do this all while knowing that this is going to be challenged in court? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, my two cents on this, and I will say I have not talked to the
0: governor or anybody on her team about it, but anytime you see an aggressive action taken by this, you know she had a small army of lawyers vetting the constitutionality of this. She even said in the opening remarks when she announced this action that she knew it would be immediately challenged and actually said it should be because that's the context of how our process works in the state of New Mexico. So my perspective on this is, I don't think she felt this was actually gonna be upheld by the courts. Um, We know there's a a very conservative U.S. Supreme Court that has actually been very pro-gun rights in terms of their recent decision-making. So I don't think she felt this was going to be something that would be upheld um, and would definitely, you know, have difficulties being um, actually implemented and enforced. And that's another issue we're gonna have to talk about. Who's actually gonna enforce um, this action that she put forth? So I think it was much more about taking an aggressive step Letting New Mexicans know, hey, I hear you. I hear your concerns about the violence across our community. And I'm going to take an aggressive action that hopefully would generate a dialogue and debate and open access points to other tools to address this. And so if you think about it, you know, obviously, she's a Democrat that's generally progressive on social policy issues. She's hoping if I take a very aggressive step, push the conversation very far to the left. Eventually, as these things come to consensus, it might end up a little bit more left of center than it would have been otherwise. So I think it was much more of a strategic move uh, than actually thinking this was going to be you know, implemented fully and, and stand up in front of the courts.
3: What was also made clear, like you just mentioned, is that our local law enforcement, Albuquerque Police and the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office cannot and will not enforce this order. The agency that can do enforcement is the New Mexico State Police But it's, again, unclear how enforcement will exactly play out over the next month, given the lawsuits already filed, some in federal court challenging whether this is unconstitutional. So what are the chances here for the governor to have this hold up in court? And what are the political consequences for her, you think?
0: You know, I don't think there's a very high likelihood this will hold up in in court. I mean, you know, our... Thought process on this is always, you know, interpreting the Constitution goes to how is the U.S. Supreme Court, which drives all other courts below its rationale and and legal maneuvering. And, you know, as I noted, this is not an ideal time for, for Democrats to try to pass anything that's controversial and might be challenging up on things like you know, our Second Amendment rights to be able to, to own, possess guns, et cetera. So I don't think there's a high likelihood of that. And obviously, you know, just walking through this, we know this is really aimed at Bernalillo County and Albuquerque. Um, APD cannot enforce this. It's a state order. So that leaves it, as you noted, Gabrielle, specifically uh, to state police. And, and that's going to be a very difficult thing for anybody to implement because all of those individuals are going to be very wary about being challenged about enforcing something that's not constitutional. Um, So I I don't think there's very high likelihood of that. So that, again, turns to the second part of the question. What's the political ramifications of this? And, you know, we're already seeing some of that ramification had, what, 100 folks turn out to protest in Albuquerque over the weekend um, about this. You've had Republicans file a lawsuit and, and argue that they've got some bipartisan support for this. Whether that actually holds true, obviously, will, will be de- determined. So obviously, this is not something that's been highly popular across the state and across the full range of the population. Uh, but a lot of the folks that would show up to protest against this weren't exactly fans of the governor to begin with. So I don't think it's a it's a huge deal for her in terms of thinking about what ramifications this might have moving forward, et cetera, in terms of passing other legislation. Uh, but I do think, again, as I noted, The cost of inaction is extremely high. Um, If you do nothing, as as the governor of New Mexico at a time where it seems like every single morning we wake up and see news of another death by shooting. If you do nothing about that, right, and you get to the end of your second term, I think the political consequences for higher office, your legacy, all of that are probably more extreme than taking maybe a controversial and maybe some might argue too aggressive stance on this issue with the action that she's taken now.
2: Some will argue that this is maybe the governor's attempt at getting a job with President Biden in Washington, who, as we know, is running for a second term next year. So what is your take on this? Is it fair, true, untrue? And, and if that is maybe a goal of hers, is there a chance that this could backfire?
0: You know, to, to be honest, I, I don't think the governor would have to take something this controversial that she's hearing so much negative pushback on to get an opportunity at a federal position. I mean, let's be honest, whether it's clean energy, her public health stance on COVID, there's a lot of other avenues that she could parlay with the Biden administration and other national Democrats uh, to put her on that stage. And to be honest, she's already probably on the short list, given how she's handled a lot of these other issues that are directly in step with the Biden administration. So I don't think she woke up that morning and said, you know what, let me take this very controversial step that I know is going to pose challenges even within my own party across the state right? to get an opportunity at a position after this. So I don't think that was the calculus. I I do think she's really looking at it in terms of I've got to do something. Um, And if I don't do something, right? not only is it going to potentially impact my next steps politically, but I do think elected officials, especially in their second term as governors, do start thinking about their longer term legacy and how they'll be remembered as governor. And, And I think that was... Probably, in my opinion, more of, of what was the motivation behind this than thinking about you know options down the line after she finishes the term.
3: The governor was asked initially during that press conference about her oath to uphold the Constitution and whether banning open carry through an executive order is infringing on those Second Amendment rights granted by the Constitution.
0: You took an oath to the Constitution. Isn't it unconstitutional to say you cannot exercise your, your carry license?
1: with one exception, and that is if there's an emergency, and I've declared an emergency for a temporary amount of time, I can invoke additional powers. No constitutional right, in my view, including my oath, is intended to be absolute. There are restrictions on free speech. There are restrictions on my freedoms. In this emergency, this 11-year-old And all these parents who have lost all these children, they deserve my attention to have the debate about whether or not in an emergency we can create a safer environment. Because what about their constitutional rights? I took an oath to uphold those too. And if we ignore this growing problem without being bold, I've said to every other New Mexican, your rights are subrogated to theirs. And they are not, in my view.
0: Well, uh, wait a minute, okay. though. You're talking about crimes. There are already laws against the crimes, so how are there rights? I got up? it. But,
1: but again, if I'm unsafe, who's standing up for that right? If this climate is so out of control, somebody should do
3: something. I'm doing as much as I know to do. So that answer about constitutional rights not being absolute, I think did spark a lot of outrage and debate online. We've seen Republicans calling her to be removed from office or even jailed. Elon Musk even chimed in on Twitter. She did say it's time to have some debate about these things, but I'm curious, do you see the conversation and debate since that announcement as a healthy debate about crime and gun violence Or is it leading to a more divisive political culture, you think?
0: Well, I don't think we can get more divisive in terms of our political culture than we already are. I mean, let's be honest. We're more
3: polarized
0: in this state than we've ever been based on party politics. We're more polarized as a nation than we've ever been in my lifetime as it just pertains to to partisan politics. So I don't think this is generating anything more than the norm. Um, And that's an unfortunate reality because I think all of us, Right. Regardless of what side of the aisle you are on, when it comes to something like protecting people under the age of 10 from being killed by gun violence, that should not be a partisan issue whatsoever. Right. And I think that's what the public is hoping to see coordination across party, across jurisdiction to do something effective to top combat violent crime in the state. And so I think it would be unfortunate if we don't see a real honest debate about the underlying public policy tools that could be utilized to do something about this issue, and it just turns into finger pointing about if you overstepped on the Constitution and underlying partisan politics, if that's what amounts from this, that would be a shame and a missed opportunity to hopefully generate some honest conversation about realistic tools that elected officials could implement that the public actually supports. So time will tell on this. I don't think it's a surprise that the immediate reaction, right, is is pushing back against the governor and, and maybe arguing that she overstepped her her powers, Uh, but let's keep in mind, the domino effects of this were first, that she declared a public health emergency. And that's an interesting uh, conversation to have in and of itself, because you are seeing a lot of states across the country treat gun violence um, as a public health issue. You're seeing Medicaid dollars, for example, be leveraged to do something about gun casualty, accidental deaths by guns. So that's an interesting conversation in and of itself. But the domino effect was, by declaring a public health emergency in the first place, she's going to argue whether or not this holds before the court or public opinion is another conversation. But she's going to argue that by doing that, it gives her the opportunity to push a little bit more further extreme on constitutional right interpretation. And that, I think, was a strategic domino effect approach to handle this.
2: You know, we have seen in the fallout since this announcement already, there's been talk of impeachment coming from a few state lawmakers, state representatives, uh, Stephanie Lord and John Block have already talked about trying to have an effort to impeach the governor. And I wanted to just ask you how impeachment works here in New Mexico. I think over the last few years, people have gotten informed about how it works federally, if you will, but how does it work here in New Mexico And, and can you see an impeachment maybe even being successful based on the political makeup we now know in the uh, House and Senate here?
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to see impeachment happen, the key is, and, and I think these Republicans who have have, have uh, filed this this notion and are arguing about taking steps for impeachment have recognized it's gonna require Democrats to cross the aisle and support this and, and, and really try to push forward, or pretty rare across state history, if you think about how often impeachment is actually even started much less even got far along into the process. And I think the likelihood of having a a significant number of Democrats say, yes, I'm going to push for impeachment of a sitting second term Democratic governor, not very high. So I I don't think this is going to go anywhere um, realistically because Democrats have such a strong numerical advantage. in in our in our state legislature so i don't think that's very likely to happen again i think it's much more about the political context and and for the republican party um, to take advantage of an opportunity that they have to push back on a governor on this issue but uh, in terms of how impeachment works the most important thing for viewers to understand is that cannot happen without democratic buy-in to this and if you just think intuitively about that would really require democrats to put their their neck out on the line to do that. And I, and I don't think that's likely to happen.
2: And it sounds like an article of impeachment based on what I was learning, um, that would have to happen in the New Mexico house. It would get passed by essentially a majority, which we know the Republicans do not have the majority to what you were saying. And then any sort of trial would happen just like in the federal level in the Senate, which requires the even stronger majority, right? The two thirds majority.
0: Super majority in the Senate. And, and, you know, you all know as well as I do, that's, that's not realistic. Um, That's not going to happen. I I very rarely will go out on a limb on things of this nature, especially because there's a lot of of road to cover between now and when that could actually occur. But I would be shocked if if I saw this go all the way past the House to the Senate and get supermajority vote in the Senate.
2: Madam Governor, do you really think that criminals are gonna hear this message and not carry a gun in Albuquerque on the streets for 30 days?
1: Uh, No, but here's what I do think. It's a pretty resounding message to everybody else in that community to report a crime, to tell us what's going on, to aid law enforcement, to do something different.
3: Going back to something, you know, I think people can not agree on is that we have seen a lot of gun crime lately and people, children being killed senselessly. The governor was asked about, well, why not just better enforce the laws on the books? And she said, you know, this public health order grants emergency funding and it sends a strong message. In her view, it makes a statement. So, Gabe, is this the way to go about that? Should politicians be using executive orders to do that when, by the governor's admission, there are questions about the challenging nature of enforcement, the constitutionality, and whether this will actually make an impact on gun crimes in Albuquerque?
0: Well, you know, we've seen executive orders uh, at the federal and state level significantly increase in utilization by executives, right? We've seen former President Obama, former President Trump, right? Current President Biden all use executive orders much more than I'm used to in terms of thinking about political history. And oftentimes I think these executives perceive if I can't get something done quickly enough, through more traditional policymaking channels, working with the House in this context, working with the Senate, often working across partisan lines. If I need to show the public that I'm taking aggressive action, the only tool I have left is executive action. Um, so this is not unique to New Mexico. This is not unique to Governor Lujan Grisham. You're seeing this utilized as a tool much more than we're, we're used to in American history and in New Mexico history for that matter. Um, so I think that's one really important point to get across Uh, To to viewers out there is that this is not something out of the ordinary, per se, in terms of an action step to take. The other thing to keep in mind is the governor's attempted to pass, in my opinion, relatively straightforward and commonsensical gun approaches. And remember, sheriffs across the state and rural areas said we're not going to enforce any of that. So you got to remember all this context, right? A governor would not take such aggressive action and open herself up for this much criticism if she felt that there were other avenues to pursue. And I think we all have to remind ourselves, I had actually forgotten about that until I was doing some prep work uh, for this conversation, that you know there has been precedent, unfortunately, of her having difficulty, specifically in the context of gun policy. And let's remember this, right? New Mexico, right, historically is part of the the Western gun culture that we have in the United States. And I've had long conversations with folks across the state that are incredibly progressive on a range of other public policies. And once you start talking about gun control and you start talking about measures to reduce gun violence, a lot of those progressive folks get a little uncomfortable. Because they recognize many of us in this state might be progressive on a lot of issues, but we own guns. We want to make sure that we have the opportunity to protect that right that we have. So anytime we start talking about guns, the Second Amendment, I can always tell you it will be much more of a controversial and contested discussion than we would have on a range of other issues. Note this, even abortion policy. We've come far in this state on that issue, much further than I thought I would see in my lifetime but that's even a different conversation when we start talking about the second amendment and we start talking about access to guns.
3: Yeah, she she did mention in that press conference that she was going to ask again for a ban on assault weapons and some of the legislation that she has been pushing for. But I'm curious, you know, could she have also used those emergency funds for things like she said, you know, law enforcement overtime and to better enforce the laws on the books? Could she have gotten emergency funding for that extra law enforcement and overtime without the use of an executive order like this?
0: Well, my understanding is, you know, declaring a public health emergency is very time-locked. You got 30 days to work with and only $750,000. I mean, that might sound like a lot of money, but to achieve something as important as as a reduction in gun violence, you know, those aren't, aren't drastic timelines to work with or a lot of money. So I think it's important to note if we're talking about going through traditional channels and utilizing this as a mechanism for longer term policy change, that short window that you have to work with, right, that that obviously is a, is a limitation in terms of how you can utilize that as a mechanism to really have major reform move through the state legislature.
2: I think one other interesting point to note here is that aside from this open and conceal carry gun ban There is also other components of this public health order. There's a call for hospitals to compile a comprehensive data report on gunshot victims in New Mexico. And there's also a push for the Environment Department to develop a program to conduct wastewater testing for illicit substances like fentanyl in public schools. Those are just two extra components of the public health order. So once the 30 days are up, the governor will decide whether the health order should be modified or extended. It is still early, but Gabe, do you see this as something that will be extended into the future?
0: You know, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because so much attention obviously immediately went to the concealed policy for firearms. You know, that, that's where everybody's attention was. That's where the protests, that's what generated pushback, et cetera. But some of those other tools are interesting as well, particularly requiring hospitals, right? To track um, gunshot wounds, try to figure out what the, the, the actual firearm was, what caliber, et cetera, as another mechanism uh, for crime fighters to utilize. Um, and I think that's also the context of a movement across the country to treat gun violence, accidental deaths by guns as public health issues. A lot of viewers might not be aware of this here in New Mexico, as well as nationally. When you start to look at some of the leading causes of death, particularly for racial and ethnic minorities and children, gun violence, accidental gun deaths are now among like the top list of all casualty rates, particularly for children. If you just think about how crazy that is, that's why we're really starting to think about this is a public health issue, which is, I think, important for viewers to understand, because a lot of folks who contacted me said, hey, Gabe, what's all this about public health? Are we talking about guns? And as part of a national conversation to really start elevating the conversation about how guns really are now part of the leading causes of death for both adults and children. So I think we need to think about that context, you know, whether or not this will be, you know, continued or revised. Obviously, a lot of that's going to depend on what we hear from the courts and how some of these initial lawsuits start to move. Um, I think that will, will give us a lot of indication of what aspects of this might have some legs. And I think, again, as I started this, to me, this was much more about generating a debate and moving the conversation forward than actually assuming that any of this was gonna pass muster and actually be upheld by the courts.
3: You mentioned, you know, the use of public health orders historically has been more frequent in the last few years. I think, especially when we think about the pandemic and the governor, you know, did face a lot of criticism for her public health orders during COVID. Do you see this as a topic of conversation, you know, that'll be discussed in political classes or even among law students?
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, what is the role of executives? How does this, uh, you know, challenge potentially our, our classic sense of checks and balances, right? All of those different discussion points. I definitely think this will be a longer term, you know, discussion in law schools. I know it's something that we're talking about. I'm in the classroom this semester. We're talking about in the context of what this means. Right. And and it's also important to always know a lot of folks have contacted me and said, hey, Gabe, aren't there better ways to achieve this? Why don't we just hire more police? Right. And and although I will say, you know, meta-analyses on the best approaches to reduce gun violence, et cetera, one of the number one issues that we see in the research is hire more police officers. But just as as a point to emphasize how difficult any of these decisions are for elected officials, I remind folks that the last time we had a significant increase in the amount of police that were hired, right, we're going back to the Marty Chavez era, uh, former Mayor Barry. Remember, crime has always been an issue in this community as long as all of us have lived here. So folks have attempted to address this by just saying, let's let in more greater cadet classes. Let's find police officers from other jurisdictions and and speed up the process to get them on the streets here in New Mexico or in Albuquerque. Remember one of the unintended consequences of that were a significant increase in gun violence as a result of police officer involved shootings. That's why the DOJ right is involved in Albuquerque. So any of these decisions, it's not as simple as just ramp up the hiring of police. You've got to deal with the potential ramifications of not having proper vetting, proper training. And unfortunately we've lived through that. Right. In the context of, of here in New Mexico and specifically in the city of Albuquerque. So I just emphasize that as just reminding people, right, it's, it's not a silver bullet solution. And I hate to use that metaphor, obviously, in the context of guns that we're talking about. But any decision that you make comes with unintended consequences, both in terms of reality and outcomes, as well as political ramifications.
2: Gabe, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we didn't ask you about outright?
0: I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else in terms of constitutionality and legality.
3: I only saw a couple of questions online, you know, related to the wastewater testing.
0: You know, we, we utilize wastewater analysis a lot, you know, in terms of public policy that we don't talk a lot about. I think for the most part, that's, by the way, how we know if there's going to be a potential spike in COVID or other kind of health issues like that you analyze you know, the the, the water and, and you can figure out if there's been a spike in any of that. So that tool has been around mostly in terms of we think about, obviously, public health ramifications and decisions that policymakers might make there. In this context, right, if you see wastewater with high levels of fentanyl, again, it can be analyzed to figure out um, if, if there's an issue with any particular jurisdiction or area of the city. Uh, but again, just for viewers, that's a tool that is often utilized in this context of public health. Interestingly here, I don't see how it's directly connected to gun violence per se, other than the obvious correlation that we see. Unfortunately, a lot of um, gun violence is, is highly correlated with drug use, right? And obviously through drug dealing, where a lot of the, the crimes that we see are escalations from that, a gun, quote unquote, gun or a drug deal gone bad, that leads to an escalation of violence. Uh, The only thing that I've heard a lot from viewers that have contacted me over the last couple of days is this perception that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of death by children, specifically gun violence that uh, sees casualties of young children, are a result of road rage. And so a lot of folks are asking, is there anything that we could specifically do to increase, let's say, enforcement if, if a crime was committed in the act of road rage incidents. So those are the things that are on the minds of viewers. If they're saying, look, a lot of this happens specifically of road rage. A lot of folks across the community are worried about being involved in a road rage incident that escalates to gun violence. Can we think about any particular policy tools that allow you to essentially increase the stakes for a criminal if they commit an act in the consequence of a road rage incident? So it's those kind of tools that I think the governor's hoping by taking a very aggressive step here, it opens the door for conversations about some things that might be easier to determine our Constitution.
3: Well, Gabe, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
0: Excellent. Always great to speak with you folks. Um, I'll see you again uh, soon, I'm sure.
3: And to Gabe Sanchez for taking the time to unpack some of this with us. Notably, during that press conference, the governor was sitting next to some law enforcement officials who have made statements since then, you know, talking about the constitutionality of this public health order and particularly APD and BCSO. Again, they will not be enforcing the gun ban portion of it, Bernalillo County District Attorney Sam Bregman also wrote a statement saying, quote, as an officer of the court, I cannot and will not enforce something that is clearly unconstitutional. This office will continue to focus on criminals of any age that use guns in the commission of a crime.
2: I was thinking of one other thing to note in context to this conversation. The governor tweeted on Sunday afternoon at Ted Lieu, who is a US Congressman in the state of California, very popular figure on Twitter, she said, "'Hey, Ted, conceal and open carry are state laws that I have jurisdiction over.'" She went on to say, "'If you're really interested in helping curb gun violence, I'd welcome you to join the next Police Academy class.'" But I thought that that was an interesting tweet to basically sum up an answer to the question, how does she think she can do this? Well, it's kind of right there, she basically says, "'I have control over the laws related to open and conceal carry in the state of New Mexico.'" We appreciate you joining us here for this week's episode. If you want to reach out with story idea, I'm at Chris.McKee at KRQE.com and at ChrisMcKeeTV.
3: And I'm Gabrielle.Burchard at KRQE.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening.